morning, everyone. What a great morning it is. I uh, spent some time this week with a group of men that I have uh, met together with now for going on 25 years. A group of five guys that we met uh, in Lubbock um, and then have remained friends since that time. And every year we come together to share our lives with each other, talk about what the Lord's doing in our own life, in our family, uh, in the churches where we worship. And uh, we've done this long enough that we have a real sense of who each other is and where we can encourage each other and how to protect one another from blind spots. And so this morning, I want to take a step of faith and share with you some of the things that I shared with this group of men. It's a little embarrassing because I had hoped to be farther along on some of these things than I am, but I often preach to you guys about the importance of sharing our lives with one another, don't I? (laughs) And so I thought it was appropriate for me to uh, practice some of my preaching. And the core of what uh, I share with these men has to do with my identity, who I am. Because the answer to that question has historically been defined by my successes where my self-worth was determined by what I did well. When I was in high school, I was a baseball player who had a a really good arm. When I was in college, I was a physical therapy student at the top of my class. When I was in my career, I was an administrator leading a a culture change, triathlete, a a cyclist. And now I'm a pastor, (laughs) And I've learned that people measure success in ministry in altogether different ways. And I'm not sure that I measure up. I mean, after all, I'm not writing any books. I'm not speaking at any conferences. In fact, uh, according to some counsel I received when I was in seminary, I'm actually an illegitimate pastor. And the reason is, is because my degree does not measure up to my calling. And so over time, the Lord has uh, continued to strip away all the things that I've used to measure my self-worth. Because He wants me to see that those things don't define who I am. And I need you to know that I consider it a great privilege to teach God's Word to you. But even that, as amazingly wonderful as that is, it doesn't define who I am. Somehow I need to define my self-worth underneath all these layers that I have described over my lifetime. It reminds me of a a scene in one of my favorite parts of the Chronicles of Narnia and the the Voyage of the Don Treader. You probably remember this. It's when Eustace, that very annoying, gripey, whiny, moany little boy, stumbles upon a treasure in a cave. It was a vast treasure and he couldn't quit thinking about all the things that this meant for his life now that he had uncovered this treasure that was now his own and he was, he was being consumed by what was his identity and what he had identified in this treasure. And he just, in that process, fell asleep there on top of his treasure. And when he woke up, he was a dragon. He had become that which had captured his heart. And he was this dragon who, who, who wanted to be released 
he wanted to release the boil as inside, but he couldn't. And he even described a point in time where he would scratch away the scales of this dragon and he'd get a layer off and then only find that there was another layer underneath that one. He became what he, what had captured his heart. And the only way this was going to change is when Aslan, the lion, enters the scene. And when he does, this is what happens. This is used to speaking and he says, the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. And what he's talking about is take off that dragon layer that has consumed you. And Eustace goes on to say, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began pulling the skin off it, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The one thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of of feeling the stuff peel off. And when he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, but they didn't hurt. And only then was I able to be the boy that I was to begin with. You see, the Lord has been peeling away layers in my life for many, many years. And one of those latest tears came when I ran across uh, something that a pastor in the 1700s by the name of Henry Scogel had written. You probably don't even recognize that name, but this man was largely responsible for some of the spiritual awakening that occurred in the Western world because of what he had to say. And he wrote a letter to somebody, and within this letter he makes this statement. I want you to listen very carefully. He says, The worth and excellency of a soul is determined by the object of its love. What he's saying here is that your identity is not found in who you are, but in whose you are. What is the object of your love determines your worth. He goes on to explain, he says, he who loves mean and sordid things himself becomes base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection does advance and improve the spirit into conformity with the perfections which which it loves. In other words, you become like that which you love most. That's where you find your identity. That's where you find your self-worth. And that is a message that the Lord has been speaking to my heart loud and clear lately. And my prayer, my sincere prayer, is that you hear that as well. Especially as we continue through our study of 1 John. Because John is teaching us that our identity is found in our relationship with God through faith in Christ, as He increasingly becomes the center of our deepest affection, the object of our love. And the more we grow in this love, the more His Spirit conforms us into His image so that that our life reflects His life. And we love one another with the love of Christ. And I believe that's the, the continued heart behind even the words of John in our passage this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, this is your time. This is your word. These are your people. And we want you to have your way in our life. So, word of God, speak. And to the very core of who we are, to help us see whose we are by faith and trust in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 13. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. If you'll begin reading, uh, following along there as I read. Verse 13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. You may remember we've already learned that that God is love, and that that love was revealed to us in the person of Christ. And now we see here that the experience of that love comes as a work of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice the progression of what originated with God, how it came near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and became known by us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, God accomplished in Christ what has always been the desire and intent of His heart. And that is to be in an abiding relationship with you and I based on His love. And this passage really explains how. It says in verse 14, The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so our relationship with God is based on His initiative. You remember that passage that we've looked at in Ephesians before where Paul says that while we were yet dead in our transgressions and sins, He, because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Divine love is a love of initiative. In other words, God moves first. And then that love invites a response. Verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. God takes the initiative. That initiative bites a response, and that response is based on that question that Jesus asked of His own disciples, right? Who do you say that I am? John says that only those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God are able to experience that relationship of love and forgiveness in Him. And since John says that that salvation hinges on this confession that Jesus is the Son of God, I think it's really important that we understand exactly what he means. Because unlike our contemporary audience who hears that phrase, that, that title, and immediately thinks about someone being born of God, Jesus being born from God, that would not have been the natural assumption of the early church. Because this was not the first time that they had heard this uh, title being used, right? In fact, you may remember when, when God is talking to Moses and he's speaking to him about what to say to Pharaoh. He tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 
in our scripture, if you look at the genealogy found in Luke, you'll see that it is written there that Seth was the son of Adam. And Adam was the son of God. You may also remember Jesus' own words in that Sermon on the Mount when He said, Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called what? Sons of God. And so from the ancient audience's perspective, identifying somebody with this title as as the Son of God was not a commentary on their biological status. It was a statement about their spiritual status. It said something very important about their relationship to God. And this was true for Jesus as well. He didn't become God's Son because He was born of a virgin. Because being the Son of God was not a biological identity. It was a spiritual identity. It said something about something very important in that relationship, in the fellowship of the Trinity, of who God is. Paul seems to explain some of that. If you want to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We've looked at this passage before. It's familiar to us. But I want you to hear from a different perspective how Paul describes who Christ is. Speaking of Him in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, And He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, what does that mean? He says in verse 16, that means that for by Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He also is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. Paul is communicating that that Jesus was God's Son from the very beginning of time. There was never a point in time when He wasn't God's Son. This is a title used to describe a very unique relationship and is not a designation given to Jesus simply because He was born of a woman. He is the Son of God because of His unity with God. He is the Son of God because He perfectly fulfills the will of God. He is the Son of God because He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the Son of God because He is one with God in perfect and undivided fellowship of the Trinity. That's the relationship that title speaks of. And so the confession that leads to salvation is that Jesus is God. The Creator God who brings life where once there was death. As John said in verse 13, we know that we have entered into this life-giving relationship with God when His Spirit abides in us. Because the Spirit testifies of this new relationship that we now have with God. Paul talks about that in Romans. This is important. Look at Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 16. Chapter 8, verse 16. And listen what that Spirit that now indwells us tells us about that relationship. It says in verse 16, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And get this. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That spirit within us testifies that we are no longer children of wrath under the judgment of God. We are children of peace because of fellowship and relationship to God through Christ. You see, what this is communicating to us is that you have been given a new life. You have been born again. You have been made alive through Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Your identity is determined by whose you are. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. That's your identity. John goes on to describe many one of the many attributes of what it means to be in this life-giving relationship with God. Turn back to our passage, 1 John chapter 4, and let's look at verse 16. It says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. This last week during the men's conference, uh, Dr. Chisholm, who you heard speak last week, spoke of an experience he had early in his marriage when they lived in Dallas and he was in seminary. You'll remember he talked about having this job at an office complex and he worked in the mail room in this job secretaries would come in and he'd be responsible for making copies and get some stuff together for them and he tells the story that one of these secretaries in particular took an interest in him was quite fond of him was quite forward towards him and made quite a lot of gestures to indicate that well he was young in his marriage but he was faithful to the commitment that he had made to his wife and so what he began to do is invite her up to have lunch with him, just to drop by during the day so that everybody around saw that he was a happily married man. Eventually, he went on to tell his wife what was going on, and, he, and, and to his surprise, she was surprised that he didn't give in to that temptation. And the reason was because her father did. That was her experience and based on that experience she assumed that that's what all men would do and it was just a matter of time she didn't have a lot of security in her relationship with dr chisholm because she didn't understand the heart of faithfulness because she hadn't seen it displayed in her own family only when she understood and and experienced the faithfulness of her husband did she appreciate the security of the sanctity of marriage And the same is true with us. The security of the beloved, that's us, is based upon the faithfulness of the lover, that's God. And our relationship with God, our confidence is based on His faithfulness. 
John says, that we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And I want you to know that that terminology is descriptive of something that you learn by experience. Now, if you grow up in the church and you've heard good teaching, you've probably cataloged some things in your head that you know to be true, that that God will never leave you and He will never forsake you. And that, that is a true statement. But true knowing and believing of that truth must come when it moves that very difficult six-inch path from your head to your heart. It's one thing to know something is true. It's something completely different to know that it's true for you. Our confidence in God's love must come through the experience of God's faithfulness so that we are secure in His coming. And here's why. Look again at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because, here it is, as He is, so also are we in the world. I want you to notice that the focus of our confidence is Him. It's God. Our confidence is based on the the perfection of His love that we experience as we abide in Him. And here's what that teaches us. It teaches us that that our acceptance is not based on our performance, but on His promise. Because here's what we learn. I find that, that He's faithful, even when I'm not. He's forgiving, even when I'm not. He's merciful, even when I'm not. I'm confident, because His love is perfect, even when I'm not. Do you see how finding your identity in that relationship keeps you from always having to prove yourself? This is not about my performance. This is about the faithfulness of God's promise. And this kind of love casts out all fear. Look at verse 18 again. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. I want you to look at it this way. Okay? Let's say that you have a new puppy. And you want to train this puppy. Okay? And so what you do is you give this dog a command. And if he does not obey, you beat him with a stick. Okay? You punish him. All right? Now, is that dog going to learn how to obey? Perhaps, but only out of fear. To the point that even if you raise your hand to pet that dog, he will cower in your presence. Because he has no confidence in your love because he lives in fear of your punishment. Listen to me. That's not the relationship we have with God. Because I want you to think about this. When? When is the only time that God raised His hand in punishment? It happened once. It was at the cross. Let 
The reason there is no fear in love is because Christ has taken the punishment that we deserved. Perfect love casts out all fear. He didn't raise his hand against me. He took it upon himself. And in his place, he gave me grace. You see, we don't fall on our knees before God in fear. We fall on our knees before God in worship and praise because of the great love with which He loves us. We are humbled by such a great love that we should be called children of God. And such we are. See, guilt comes from condemnation. But the Scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fear comes from punishment. But the Scripture just told us there is no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Perfect love casts out all fear. Because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved and in its place He gave us peace through the blood of the cross. Our confidence before God is based on what Jesus accomplished and the relationship that we are invited to experience because of that. It is His provision that made that relationship a reality. And when I put my faith in Him, I am believing that my righteousness is not my own, derived from my good deeds. It is the righteousness that comes from God based on faith in what Jesus accomplished on my behalf. And so, once again, <laughs> my identity is not in me. It's Christ in me. It's not in who I am. It's in whose I am. His love is the basis for my security. And I have great security when I understand that my acceptance is based on His provision and not my performance. And this quality of relationship has a transforming effect in our life. Let's look at that together in verse 19 of our passage. It says this, We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and then hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother. John is making the point here that you cannot be united with God and walk in the fellowship of His love and not be conformed into His image. In fact, the deeper the unity that you have with God, the greater the magnitude of change you should see in your life. I mean, it's true in every other relationship that we have, so why wouldn't it be true in our relationship with God? There's no question that I am a better man because of the faithful love my wife. Our marriage has consistently revealed in me places where I fall short, where I am selfish, where I am not the man that God has created me to be. And whatever makes it through that filter of my marriage gets stuck right when it hits parenting. Right? 
You see, all relationships are designed to be, be used by God as a sanctifying tool, especially our relationship with Him. We love because He loved us. We love others based on the experience of our love from God. His love transforms our love to become a self-sacrificing, life-giving love that we don't have apart from Him. That's why John says, if someone says, I love God, but then goes on to to be indifferent or to be unkind or to, to hate his brother, that he is a liar. Because after all, isn't that what the false teachers have done in our 1 John letter? They are claiming to have fellowship with God. But they just walked away from the fellowship of the believers. They left the church. And by the way, how is that any different than when we say that we love God but choose to live independently, separate and apart from the fellowship of this body of believers? According to John, it's just not possible. He's saying that our love for one another is evidenced in our love, is the evidence of our love for God. And not just in words, but in deeds. He says, look, let's be honest with ourselves. If you don't love your brother in a visible and tangible way, then how am I to understand and believe that you love God in ways that nobody else can see? That's like me saying, I'm an incredible concert pianist, but I just don't play in front of people. The same thing, right? You see, anyone can claim to love God when that love doesn't cost them anything. But like the singer John Mayer would say, when you show me love, I don't need your words. Because love ain't a thing. It's a verb. Apostle Paul actually says it a little better. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, a very familiar passage. But I want you to listen to the action that he uses to describe the evidence of love. Right? Chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into action account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The point is that love is an action, not just a confession. If you're going to say you love, then I need to see your love. John finishes by reminding us that the obedience to God is the demonstration is demonstrated in that our obedience to God is the demonstration of our love for God. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus said when He told us that if you love Me, what? You'll keep My commandments. He also said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. It's a commandment. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. 
in Boys Brigade, we have been memorizing some passages, and one of them speaks to this. So, Mr. Jake Hodge, would you please stand up and recite to the church family Matthew chapter 32, verse 27 through 30. Amen. There it is. Love God. Love others. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Now, as we finish up, I want to draw your attention to one more thing, and it must be significant, because John mentions it five times in our passage this morning and another 12 times in verses that precede it. And it's a word that he continues to repeat, and it's the word abide. Abide. And so I want us to consider what exactly does it mean to abide in God? To abide in God's love. To abide in the Spirit. I believe one of the aspects of abiding must have to do with obedience because he says it several times. He says, those who abide in God don't practice sin. Those who abide in God keep His commandments. Those who abide in God overcome the evil one. And so an abiding relationship with God leads to a life of obedience. And here's how I believe that happens. And I want you to think through this. A relationship with God that is based on love is built on trust. So I'm not following what God says because I'm afraid if I don't, He's going to zap me, right? That's not the motivation of my obedience because perfect love casts out all fear that involves punishment. And there is no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't obey out of guilt where I feel like I have something to prove to God. In fact, the the harder I work to prove myself before God, the farther I move away from my relationship with Him because it inherently turns the focus on me and not on Him. See, our obedience needs to flow out of the experience of God's love, that which I know and believe to be true. Because if I, I truly believe this, that if I do what He says, that it will in fact accomplish His highest good in my life. I trust Him more than I trust me. Do you get that? I follow His Word because I believe His ways are better than my ways. I believe His Word because I believe it teaches me how to relate to Him and to grow in my love and understanding of what it means to to trust Him. So that an abiding relationship based on love, built on trust, leads into a life of obedience. Because I trust Him. And I want to do what He says, not to prove anything, not because of punishment or guilt. It's because I know that He is good and that He loves me and He wants the highest good for me. And if I do what He says, I experience the fullness of what He has created me to be because that's where I find my identity. The other aspect of an abiding relationship with God has to do with transformation. 
The reason we know that to be true because John says, those who abide in Him walk in the same manner as He walks. Speaking of Jesus. Those who abide in Him love as He loved. Again, speaking of Jesus. So to abide in Christ is to become like Him. Where the beloved takes on the attributes of the lover. I just read a story of a gentleman who uh, hiked the Appalachian Trail. that goes from Georgia all the way up to Maine. It takes weeks and months. A lot of people do it. I like to read it because I want to live vicariously through people that do things that I really would like to do but know I never will. And one of the things that he said that he wrote in the back of the book as he finished up his story of that experience was that part of his motivation was to, to point out that the Christian life doesn't have to be boring. This is what he says. He says, if people observe your daily life, they should be saying, I want what he has. And yet Christians, and this is in his opinion, although I tend to agree, are often some of the most downtrodden, dismal, and judgmental people in the world. And yet they should be the happiest folks you ever meet. I think he's right. And I needed to be reminded by those words that, that my attitude and outlook on life should experience, should should reflect God's point of view. I need to to learn to view life from His perspective, right? That seems to be Paul's point in Philippians. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. I think this is what it looks like to live life from God's perspective. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord sometimes when you feel like it and things are going well. That's not what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men that the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. Now I know some of you are in some difficult times. And I know in, for all of us, there are seasons of, of challenge and hurt and pain. And you may listen to that and say, yeah, that sounds great. But God also said that there would be trouble in this world and it wouldn't be easy. And I would tell you, you're right. You're right. But that brings us to the final attribute of what it means to abide in God. And that's the ability to not be overwhelmed by your circumstances because you know ultimately who's in control. John has said that throughout our, our letter because he says those who abide in Him will have confidence in His coming. We read that this morning. He also said that those who abide in Him will not be ruled by fear. He also says that those who abide in Him are certain about their identity of who they are in Christ. So on one hand, I would agree with you that there, there are some terrible things that are going on in this world and many of us are experiencing pain and suffering. And in my opinion, I think a lot of those things go bad before they get better. They get worse before they get better. But I don't want to let my circumstances dictate my attitude or my outlook on life. 
You see, I'm a child of the king. I am a child of the king. And my father has told me how this will end. Like you said, we are undefeated. We don't lose this battle. The battle has been won. My life is not based on my circumstances. It's built on His promises. And when I abide in Him, I have great assurance that all things work together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And here's the deal. We need to reflect the heart that Job had in the midst of what I can only imagine be the utmost of human misery. Listen to what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And I have great confidence at His coming because I know who I am in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the assurance of who we are in You. of Teaching us gently, patiently, carefully as, we, as You peel back those, those layers of our life where we find our identity, our value, our self-worth. And You teach us that's not what it is. It's in me in what I've done on your behalf. It's not your faithfulness, it's mine. May we trust in your love and abide in it daily so that out of that love we obey, not because of guilt, not because of of fear, but because of trust that you are good, that you are righteous, and you want our highest good. And when we follow you, We walk in the good works that you prepared beforehand. That's who you are. And that's who we are in you. May we live that identity this week. It's in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen. Have a great day.